Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome, Sharon and listeners, to another episode of Beyond the Mask. <laughs> With Sharon Pierce. <laughs> and Jeremy Stanley. <laughs> so good to be in the studio this morning. It is. It is. Especially on a Saturday morning. Where else would you rather be? Right? <laughs> well, I enjoy oh. my time with you. How's that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's always fun. I enjoy it. And this morning, we have our wonderful historical guest with us, Sandy Ulett and Nancy Marie. Welcome, ladies. Good to be here. It's always yep. good to see you. And this morning, we're going to be talking about, gosh, can I say this? Manpower? Uh, or woman power. Woman power? power. <laughs> woman man power? Uh, yeah. Um, Person power. <laughs> Person, Person power. power. There you go, there Sandy. We go. All right. But, you know, it's always been an interest for the ANA. And I don't think it was really a recorded part of the history um, prior to the 1980s. And then that kind of changed when there was a lot of program closures in the 80s, like 82 to 89. And so Nancy and Sandy today are going to discuss this topic and and tell us a little bit more about that. And Sandy, why don't you tell us about some of the trends in the 70s and 90s that kind of had an impact on the person power? Okay. Uh, In 1974, and remember, that was when our uh, credentialing uh, councils were formed. Uh, And it that came about because of uh, of a push by uh, federal regulators um, to change recognition of these credentialing powers. So we ended up with our councils. But in 1974, we had 210 programs that graduated about 1,200 uh, new uh, individuals a year. By 1980, the number of programs had closed to 163. But what was very interesting the number of annual graduates remained about the same, hmm. uh, 1,023 or so per year. Now, why was that? Well, the programs closed because credentialing was costing the programs a lot more. There were, st- there were standards, there was criteria, there were things. You, you couldn't be uh, see one, do one, teach one. If you need a new body, you bring in a new person and make a CRNA out of them. So it was more costly. So these programs closed. But the ones that remained expanded their capacity. So we didn't see a huge drop in annual graduates. 
But between 1982 and 1989, there was a tremendous uh, decline in our educational programs that coincided with a decline in, um, in our number of graduates, almost in half. For example, in 1982, we had 142 programs, and we were still graduating around 1,000 people a year. Not bad. But by 1989, we had 82 programs, and we graduated <coughs> 592 people a year. So we obviously were a profession that was dying on the vine because we did not have the right resources or ability to uh, have new graduates enter our specialty per year. Uh, in 1995, the programs had increased a little bit, and the graduates went, went back up. But the, the point to be made here is 60 programs closed between 1982 and 1989, with the number of annual graduates nationally reduced by about half. Um, and so this specialty was certainly on the endangered list, unless there was quick, effective action. Wow. So that 1989, there were only 82 programs. I started school in 1990. Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew it was competitive. (laughs) Well, Wake Forest has always been super competitive (laughs) to get into. And then I think we were ranked like second in the country um, to get into. And there were a lot of applicants Mm -hmm. and we only had 10 spots at that time. So Yeah, that, that's right, so, uh, Sharon, because in 1988, our program was reduced. They didn't close us, but yes. they reduced how many we, uh, they being uh, the Department of Anesthesiology working with hospital administration, uh, reduced the number of uh, people we could admit uh, oh, substantially. I bet, I bet you had a few things to say oh, about I that. <laughs> I did, but it, it didn't was do like, any good. It, it didn't, and uh, we had to find a way around it. We couldn't go head to head with it. We had to find a way around it, and which we did. did. Which we did. You did because my class was the first class that had external cl- clinical sites because we used to do all of our clinicals at the mothership, Baptist, mm-hmm. and then. We started having, and that's how you increase the numbers, that's by right. getting extra clinical that's right. sites. That's right. I bet that was some job to go around and Actually, because of the shortage that was created at the time, these hospitals not only were welcoming us, but they were paying us to have our students for a while. And, and that went on for a while, and then I got a call from a hospital administrator. Let me get this right. We are taking your students. We're preparing them clinically, and we're paying you to do this. Somehow it doesn't make sense. So we needed these sites, so eventually we dropped any fee that the clinical sites would have to pay us. Wow. Uh, but, but the shortage, you know, the shortage that was created really played into our favor to get these hospitals uh, around us to want to be a part of clinical training. Well, there was just um, a paper in the AANA journal, not the one that just got mailed out, but the one before. And in it, it says that if students rotate to the sites, there are three times more likely to take a job at a site that they have rotated to. So what a great recruitment tool. That's uh, that's all what it's about. And believe me, we use that to get these, one of the things that we use to get these these hospitals interested in being a clinical site because you could it was kind of like when they rotated there you interviewed them without really asking any questions because you could see their work ethic you could see their skills that type of thing and Mm -hmm. so that was 
Well, I can see oh, this real. coming back around again with the shortage. <laughs> again, history repeats itself. Yeah, well, you know, the clinical site thing has not ever gone away. I mean, uh, even the medical center today, I, I don't know exactly how many, but I bet you it's over 15 to 20 clinical sites. They've never uh-huh. let them go. And it's great because it gives them greater diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of these clinical sites are the ones that really help so much get uh, regional experience with epidurals and other regional blocks. That's true. And it gives them a real opportunity to see uh, the real big bad cases they do in an academic medical center. Other large hospitals, community hospitals, rural practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives the students a varied view of what they can expect so um so it's been good for everybody Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um but you're right the greater the shortage the hungrier these sites get uh, to have students come come and be a part of them well i agree so nancy what were some of the major factors that led to a decrease in manpower during during these years let's go over those well, in 1975, as Sandy alluded to, the credentialing functions of the AANA were transferred away from AANA to two autonomous councils. Uh, they were multi- multidisciplinary councils, and, but they did exist under the corporate structure, but not physically a part of the corporate structure, I guess is one way to say it. And those two councils were the Council on Accreditation and the Council on Certification. Uh, Each of the councils also achieved and maintained regional and national recognition by the groups that you would want to be recognized by, such as the U.S. Department of Education, which you need in order to get traineeship money and those types of things, the Council of Post-Secretary Accreditation, and the National Organization for Certifying Agencies, um, which was very important for our councils to be a part of because it gave them uh, a, a greater validity, I guess is one way to see it, to be recognized by these. So uh, in establishing the Council on Accreditation, <coughs> Particularly, I I can speak more to that than I can to certification. There were changes that had to be made in the schools, and some schools didn't want to make those changes. And so, although um, there were other factors involved in the closing of the schools, some of the schools closed because they did not want to um, go through the upgrading that they were going to have to go through in order to maintain their education program. And then... You know, Sandy, what happened in the 80s that affected CRNA person power? Well, these were some things that had a very serious impact on uh, education of nurse anesthetists. And one, of course, was enactment of PPS, Prospective Payment System, in 1983. That created disincentives for future employment of CRNAs. And that's what led us to march to Washington, D.C., federal legislation and regulatory relief, um, which then uh, ended after a seven-year process, uh, direct reimbursement and a payment schedule under Part B Medicare. That was the biggie um, because it was said but not written (laughs) that Washington would be having any part in educating our competitors. And whether we liked it or not, the anesthesiologist in these hospitals and then it was one school, one site, or two sites, mm-hmm. maybe. It wasn't a lot. Um, they're the gatekeepers of the OR. Mm-hmm. 
and they can tell you, and, and they work with the administration to tell you how many you can admit, and if they say we're not going to admit any, then that was it. They were in power. So that was big. And, and during this time of, of uh, a pattern of nurse anesthesia closures, uh, it coincided with an increase in the number of graduates of medical schools and recruiting efforts within ASA to increase the size of residency programs. The proposals occurred simultaneously with efforts to move all programs for nurse anesthetists into a graduate framework. And all of that just created the perfect storm. And of course, all of our programs did move into the graduate framework by 1998. We really had wanted that to happen by 94, but it took four more years than we had planned. I got caught up in that cycle because I was a well, this I was an ADN grad, right? And then you had to have your bachelor's to get in, and so I got caught up in right. all of that. So I had to go immediately back. Oh. to get my bachelor's and then they had started the master's piece so I started my master's before I actually got into anesthesia but I got caught wow. up in that right. whole right. thing <coughs> my timing was a little off <laughs> <laughs> so anyway um, there was a study during that time by a former uh, ANA president uh, Mary DePaula Slutso uh, indicated that program closures really centered around three major areas, and she did survey of program directors. One, of course, was the passage of PPS legislation and concerns over hospital financial stability. See, so not many of our programs were in university frameworks at the time. They were pretty much hospital-based and Mm -hmm. hospital-funded. And and the other thing was diversion of nurse anesthesia clinical sites to anesthesiology residents for economic uh, philosophical and political reasons. That's what happened to us mm-hmm. in 1988. I lost four or more sites because the residency program went to a fourth year. Oh, the spots. Yeah, the, the four clin- spots. Clin- clinical sites. Okay. Yeah, so I couldn't admit as many SRNAs because the residents might need these cases. And remember, the only thing we had there then was um, our academic medical center for clinical experience as well as for Scythe. Mm-hmm. That was at that time. And then the third reason that uh, that Mary identified in her study was denial of access to clinical teaching facilities for political reasons. And you can remember during that eight-year period, 82 to 89, somewhere around in there, we lost almost all of our programs in major academic medical centers. If you look at Johns Hopkins, you look at Duke, for example. Oh, yes. Duke would have been the longest the oldest program in the state of North Carolina had it been continuous, but it got caught up in all this, and it closed during that time. And, you know, as a program director, you're looking to your right and you're looking to your left, and all you're seeing is program after program after program closing, and they're talking to you about reducing the number you admit, and and you're thinking, hey, you know, I've got to be next. And uh, so, you know, but it sort of worked in our favor because at the time, this reduction in annual graduates created a major CRNA shortage. And you couldn't buy a CRNA for any price. And that made the clinical sites much more interested um, in being a part of us. The other thing um, is program closures were coupled with an increased demand for services. So you got a declining uh, species there in terms of the CRNA. And you have a uh, expansion of clinical services. And part of the reason for that was decentralization of anesthesia sites with explosion of procedures done in ambulatory care facilities, 
uh, and physician offices. And that know? continues. <laughs> yeah, it does. And then the increasing complexity of surgery on half uh, high <laughs> high risk patients. Oh God! I was and that say, continues. I was going to say half dead patients. <laughs> That's a bad thing to say. But high risk patients required two professionals um, often. You know, two skilled hands, mm-hmm. and then the increasing number of physicians being educated performing more services that required anesthesia. So there was at that time just an abundance of trainees because they were using this with the workforce. You know, in these academic medical centers, if you run your nurse anesthesia program away, who's going to do the work every day? You <laughs> well, expand, that's still the question. You, you, expand, you expand your residency program. See, look, this is, this is the 80s. This is what, 40 years ago? Right. Oh, my God. Did I ha- did I add that right? <laughs> yeah. Right. 40 years ago. And look, these are the same conversations That's we're right. having That's today. Right. So anyway, we were in bad shape. Yes. Uh, except the shortage was creating demand, but we couldn't really feel the that need. demand. At that. This was 89. So, Nancy, what yeah. happened then? Well, in 1990, um, there was a CRNA manpower study that was commissioned by Congress, and it was performed by DHHS. Uh, Facts that motivated the study were one half of the nurse anesthesia training programs, obviously, we've talked about, closed between 1978 and 1988. The number of graduates decreased by one-third during the same period of time. The number of anesthesiology residents nearly doubled at the same time, and CRNAs outnumbered anesthesiologists two to one 20 years ago, but now numbers were roughly equal. Uh, The estimated number of CRNAs needed by 2010 uh, was projected to be 35,000, which was a 40% more uh, increase than currently existed. So these were things that the study brought And that was out. in 1990, yeah. It, yes, it was in, the study was in 1990. Yeah, yeah. The projection for 2010 was that we needed 35,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, to achieve this number uh, and taking into account that people are going to retire, leave the profession for various reasons, the study concluded that it would require yearly graduation of 1,800 CRNA students between 1990 and 2000 and 1,500 per year through 2010. This recommendation to achieve a 200% increase over 1990 graduates and sustaining that increase for the next 20 years. So that was a, a big yeah, because at that issue. time, we were doing a third of that, really. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, the study pointed to a $1.2 billion savings to society through the increased use of CRNAs in anesthesia care. So that was 1990. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. 30 well, years 32 ago. 32 years ago. 30. Mm-hmm. So obstacles in achieving the study's recommendation, the primary barrier to increasing capacity of training programs was lack of clinical sites. Uh, At that time, only 5% of facilities served as clinical sites, and one-third of the programs were affiliated with only one clinical site. Which was ours. Uh, The movement to graduate education, which finalized in 1998, helped expand clinical sites, Hospital-based programs tended to move to have one site only, while university programs 
tended to have multiple sites. But again, the the number of actual <coughs> programs that were centered in universities was not as great as it is now. No, yeah, okay. it's, it's all of them now. Uh, another deterrent to expansion of clinical access was bias in Medicare reimbursement systems in the Medicare reimbursement system that favored physician supervision of residents over nurse anesthesia students. Medicare would pay anesthesiologists to supervise two resident rooms, but only one SRNA room. This bias favored expansion mm -hmm. of the residency programs and not the nurse anesthesia. Follow the money. Yep. There you go. Another factor favoring residents over <clears throat> students were hours in the facility. A physician resident could work 80 to 90 hours per week, while the Council on Accreditation limited the SRNAs to 60 hours of class and clinical a week. So the Council on Accreditation changed these criteria in 1990. To more hours? So then we could work <laughs> the SRNAs <laughs> they, they, they to 90? They removed some of those restrictions, but they yeah. said they would monitor on a program-by-program uh, yeah. program basis because okay. it was hurting us. Sure. in this arena yeah um and lack of faculty was another factor in expanding the programs uh when this study was done only 425 ftes were training students in the educational back pipeline three times that many were needed and limiting factor in 1990 to faculty was lack of credentials and inadequate compensation for faculty. But keep in mind, you know, our programs have moved to a master's degree, or they did move to a master's degree, and were moving to a master's degree beginning around 1990. The, the Usually the ones that only had the credentials to be faculty were the ones that were already faculty. And you didn't see a lot of CRNAs who did not have a master's degree getting a master's degree in order to become faculty yeah. for these programs yeah and i got caught up in that sharon you were saying right. you got caught up in a student i got caught up as faculty because by then i'd gone to school at night and finished a bachelor's degree um and you know because i was a diploma nurse mm -hmm. and a diploma you know anesthesia graduate and then was all schools were moving to masters as a program director i had to have a master's mm. so like nancy worked all day went to school at night and um and then finally finished the master's degree. Uh, when our program went into the master's framework at the University of North Carolina in 1988, so but the faculty had to be prepared. And um, even later, <coughs> when we were looking at the doctoral task force, and that was around 2005, 2006. One of the things that would really be a barrier and slow us to move into doctoral education was the fact that 1.2 percent of all of our faculty then had a doctoral degree. 1.2%, wow. and that included JDs, and that was in 2005. <clears throat> and so we knew as a task force for doctoral education, it would take 20 years, just like it took 20 years mm -hmm. to move yeah. to the master's to give this faculty time to catch up and get the credentials they need if we're going to offer a, a doctorate. And our people, they always step to the plate. You give them time, they're always going to be there, and, and they get it done. And for that, I'm very grateful to our educators. And also, I had to go do my bachelor's degree with Sandy. Yeah, right. <laughs> and how was that? Well, if I could keep her from from eating the 
specimens in our lab. Well, Nancy, it was late at night, and we hadn't had dinner. Uh, that's true. And is that frogs or what? Why no. were y'all eating apples? Doritos. This in was botany, biology. In botany, botany she, ate the, she ate the specimens. Oh, gosh. And she also went around and watched what everybody else was doing and came back and told me I was doing it all yeah, wrong. We were partners. We were partners. I was a cheerleader, and she was a doer. And I'd go socialize with everybody else in the lab. No <laughs> kidding. <laughs> and I told Nancy, I said, we don't have many bubbles. Everybody else has got thousands of bubbles in this experiment, so ours has to be wrong. So, so, so Nancy goes to the professor, and he says, well, how many bubbles do you have? She said, we don't have but two. He said, you're the only one in the class doing it right. <laughs> and remember the slides, Nancy. Oh, Lord. I had to be away when we had to do wet slides for some experiment we were going to do later on. So Nancy helped me do them, but my slides never dried. They never dried. <laughs> the whole semester, they never dried. <laughs> so I had to take one of her backup slides, and she said, if you break this, this is our only backup slide. Do not break this slide. Uh, so I, mean, I guess y'all won't be going to get your doctorates together. Now. <laughs> like you've got an honorary doctorate anyway. Yeah, that's but right. speaking of doctorates, it still said this was in 2019. There's still less than 1% of all nurses in the country. Nurses, no nurses in uh, general nurses, nurses in have their DMP. Wow! So I think we're probably above that curve. I don't know how many in the nurse anesthesia community, but I think it's more than that. Right. I right. would think so. It'd be yeah, interesting it to, be now. to see mm-hmm. what those numbers are because we've ex- increased our numbers so much, yeah. and has that diluted the number of doctoral people that we have? But we have enough, you know, yeah. without any any question, um, in in our programs today. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Well, Sandy, what what did A&A do to address some of the issues that were highlighted by the continuing decrease (coughs) of graduates um, at the end of the 80s? Okay, so I finished my presidency for A&A in 1989, and and Richard Ouellette uh, followed me for his second term. He was the first to be elected twice as A&A president, and I think we've mentioned that before. And he saw, and I did too, but... I didn't, we didn't know exactly what to do about it, but uh, he appointed the National Commission on Nurse Anesthesia Education, which is the only commission that has ever been appointed and functioned under the INA in all of history. And, um, and I was uh, invited to chair that. That was immediately after my presidency. So, and it was time sensitive. We had to get this done in less than 12 months. So, in fact, uh, we did. It functioned between 1989 and 1994, but the first report and the plan for faculty and programs was released in about eight, about nine or ten months 
uh, from the commission and that is available for anybody that wants to do a deep dive and look more into what happened uh, during that time and so while the number of nurse anesthesia programs increased the commission felt that we didn't need 200 programs again we didn't need 160 programs again we needed somewhere around 100 programs uh, that would be uh, very tightly associated with universities which would give it some security and not the political stuff you get into when the program is owned by a hospital and so but we needed many <coughs> clinical sites we had already started that at wake and um, we had, uh, as Sharon knows, she, she went to some of our early clinical sites. And so uh, today we have about 120 programs, but we have well over 2,000 or more clinical sites. And so that was the key. It was the clinical sites. And what that also does, it makes it very hard for these programs to be targeted for closure for any reason, as long as the demand is there for CRNAs. Uh -huh. Because, you know, with these clinical sites, when I retired into, uh, from program director in 2005, we had probably 14 or 15 clinical sites. We have administrative contracts with all those sites. We were into the Academic Medical Center. We're, we were into the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. We had uh, contractual arrangements. It's not easy to get out of these contractual arrangements. And there's a time that you have to give before you can move. So it's hard to target. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so so that that did us a world of good so a very serious bullet at that time was dodged and the number of graduates increased substantially uh, year after year after year to what we have now which is well over 2,000 graduates a year and um, so not much is said about the Commission but if you really study it you will know it saved the bacon yes we were dying and you know Sharon can tell you I told her I told her class don't you go and embarrass us at these clinical sites right Sharon oh <laughs> yes threaten within a inch of your life yes yes if a site closes because of your behavior or your yes. class we got to have these sites that's guys. the truth and uh, and so and they all did good and then Sandy, after I graduated, I drove this old beat up yellow Volkswagen. <laughs> now we used to go; my entire class could practically get in that thing when we would have didactic, and we looked like clowns. Sandy said when we come back, we just all kept rolling out of it. Well, I kept driving it for a while after I got out of school. Sandy called me; and she said, "Will you please get you another car? Because people think that CRNAs don't make any money, <laughs> and you need to trade cars because that thing not an good for the image." <laughs> for the image <laughs> it's an embarrassment <laughs> yeah. all right so nancy there were other pieces of this perfect storm so what was happening in the anesthesiology training programs in the early 90s that contributed to this well as sandy has sort of alluded to uh there were changes going on in the residency programs also and in 1988 residency education increased from three years to four years which we've already mentioned. And from 1990 to 1995, there was a slight decrease in the number of residents enrolled nationally. It decreased from 5,246 to 4,951. But during the same time, the number of um, 
International medical graduates. Yeah, mm-hmm. out of the country medical graduates. We used to go, what, foreign, foreign FMGs, medical graduates. Foreign, med- foreign medical that, graduates. That had a very negative connotation, so they changed it from foreign <laughs> medical graduates to international, international medical okay. graduates. Okay, <laughs> international, um, IMGs. Okay. They increased in order to increase the enrollment in the medical schools so that and the workforce increased. the workforce and yeah, academic yeah. hospitals well yeah. you know whenever i was in school there uh, there were italians pakistanis mm-hmm. uh indians there weren't a lot of no naturalized mm-hmm. i guess mm-hmm. but that Graduates. increased from 560 to 12 to 1220 now since 1991 50, there's been a 54% de- decline in recruitment of US medical students but but had been uh, of US medical students but by 1994 the growth in um, international medical graduates preserved the overall recruitment of anesthesia residents so by 1995 however the international medical graduate recruitment did not match significantly the decline in the U.S. graduates. So that was a serious time, wasn't it, Nancy, yes. for the residency programs? Yes. So in 1995, attrition residency programs was 14% in the CA1 year and 8% in the CA2 year, in other words, the mm-hmm. first and second year. All of this combined implied a 23% reduction in overall recruitment, uh, and it could be followed by a comparable level of attrition. Okay? All right. right. So many residents left programs based on the ABT corporate report suggesting a surplus of anesthesia providers in the coming years. Boy, they missed that mark, didn't they? (laughs) Well, you know, at that time, Nancy, you remember, they were saying there's probably 15,000 too many Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, anesthesiologists based upon some of the studies, including the app studies, and they saw residents finishing and unable to find, find jobs, jobs. Oh, that was between wow. 90 and 95 yeah i remember you talking about how they would sit they would sit on a stool well, yep. and make yep. a crna salad and they went out to our rural hospitals yep. and some of them did fellowships they increased uh they went back for fellowships mm-hmm. you know yeah. because the jobs weren't there well wow. particularly in cardiovascular and right uh, into neuro mm-hmm. um, some did pediatric fellowships mm-hmm. but the number of uh International medical graduates entering anesthesia schools did increase by 15 percent in 1992 and 50 percent of the class in 1997. Wow. Okay. So approximately 60 percent of finishing residents elected to do a fellowship, as Sandy <coughs> mentioned, in an anesthesia subspecialty because they could not find jobs. So while there was a shortage of CRNAs during this time, there was an abundance of anesthesiologists, and some found it difficult to find employment. Um, And a lot of this, you know, it was really economically a problem because the more anesthesiologists you hire, the less money you make in the Uh, group, you know. (laughs) And so they not only... uh, you know, was it, there were a lot of factors that were playing a role in this uh, anesthesiologist problem. I, they they did something to try and control their numbers within their organization, I believe, because I know this popped up whenever 
um, even when I was president because people were complaining everywhere I went saying we had too many anesthesia students coming out and they clearly had not read the manpower study Uh because we knew what was coming we knew the storm that was coming but people would always say well the anesthesiologists dealt with their problem in the 90s and why doesn't the AANA do something about it Anyway, it's not the role of the parent organization to deal with the. uh, No, but see, you've got to look at these these years too, Mm -hmm. because when this was happening with the anesthesiologist and they're not being able to find jobs, the issue about the supervision came up because of them moving in, particularly to rural sites, uh, taking those over. And then they would leave, and there was no one to give anesthesia in the rural sites. Hospitals lost their pass-through money. And mm-hmm. so uh, thus began the move to get rid of the supervision in Part A Medicare. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow. Well, it's a puzzle. It is. It all fits together. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So, Sandy, in 2003, the ANA Foundation did a supply and demand study for CRNAs. What were some of the findings of that? Well, one was that the average age of CRNAs in 2003 was 47 um, years of age, and it was likely to increase to 48.7 by 2018. And 83% of CRNAs prepared at the doctoral level were over the age of 45. So 50% of those individuals were expected to retire in 10 years. Um, This was expected uh, to be problematic for academic institutions. In late 2002, hospitals had a 13% vacancy rate for CRNAs, and ambulatory care facilities had a vacancy rate of 12%. And graduate rates for new CRNAs increased 7.4% between 1997 and 2002. CRNA salaries more than doubled in the last 16 years. Now, this was 2002. and three, or since 1987, and then we've got our direct reimbursement in 1986, and predicted growth rate of salaries may decrease in the future as the number of CRNAs entering the workforce increases. And that's what makes some of our clinicians very, very nervous. They think, you know, know, with the market, we're flooding the market, you know, we're going to, we're making too many. I think our biggest challenge is not making too many, but it's making too few because that really opens a whole another market for other providers, Absolutely. such as anesthesia assistants. And, and if you think about today, just to see where we are today, the average CRNA I think is right at 51. And, I thought it was older than that. <laughs> and, I, you know, I think that, again, they're saying in the next 10 years, 50% are going to retire and there's 58,000. So that means 29,000, and how many students are we putting out today? 22, 2,400 a year? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So you do the math on that, and we're just going to stay kind of constant, and if not go down from the anticipated retirements, we're back in this exact same boat, aren't we? Yeah, we could be, and there's other factors, some that are internal factors that we create, and some are external. 
uh, and I'm thinking now of the NBCRNA CPC program. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people will work until they're 60, 65, and some of them, like my husband, worked until he was 75 years of age. Right. But I can tell you he would not have worked until he's 75 years of age meeting all the criteria of the CPC. Oh. He, he would not do it. Yeah. And I'm finding many people on, you know, the scientific Facebook, <laughs> if yeah. you could call it that, <laughs> um, that says, hey, I'm, I'm just turning 65 and I'm quitting. I'm done. I'm turning in my license. So yeah. a lot of these people have, have provided yeah. a good service, a temporary service. Uh, and it's good for the hospitals because they don't have to pay them benefits, and they're there and available two or three days a week or whatever. And so that's a, a th- part of the workforce that we don't think about. Right. And mm-hmm. it may not be there. Right. Right. With, with I hear that a lot from well, CRNAs. You know, I, I don't want to go through this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to take this test. I'm retiring before right. then. The, the one thing that could turn that around, now economically we're in a pretty that's good spot. That's what I was getting ready but to say. if the economy turns, which – the likelihood of recession building over the next few years is probably there, um, then that could change people's viewpoints on that well, as well. That's right. what so, happened yeah. in 08. <clears throat> right. Our numbers right. were saying we were going to dip. Well, then they didn't because yeah. people delayed retirement. Yeah. Their 401ks were worth 50% of what they were right. before. That's, right. that's so true. They Within 18 on, months, they were back. But yeah. still, it but still they, left that feeling in 18 people. 18 more months. Kind of like that, you know, you know, maybe your parents, grandparents grew up in that depression age, and you never got that out of people. Yeah. Once Even you the go children, through it, like, oh, yeah. like me, yes. the first child of parents who grew yep. up, I had a lot more of that than my sister, yes. who was born 14 years. You, it you will know. never, you will never That's forget right. that experience. That's exactly. right. Exactly. Ever. And, um, yeah, and so uh, so all these things are, are important. The data also showed in the 2003 um, study that CRNAs and anesthesiologists are substitutes in providing anesthesia for surgeries. It is estimated that per capita demand for surgeries will remain stable over the next 15 years despite changes in age distribution, income, and the insurance environment. The supply of CRNAs increased in recent years, stimulated by the number of new graduates. This increase is not enough to offset the number of retiring CRNAs. To maintain a constant age in the CRNA population, and the average age will continue to to increase. So as you mentioned, Jeremy and, and Sharon and everybody, these studies are done, but they just never quite hit the bullseye mm-hmm. because right. there's so many factors that can change the workforce that we aren't even thinking about now. Right. A pandemic, for example. Yes. Mm, you yes. know? And look what they did when they started closing elective, you know, stopping elective procedures. I mean, the ball's up in there all the time. Right. And it's real hard to get a, a real clear focus on what is needed and what is not. Well, hindsight's always twenty twenty. So what happened, and tell us the key points from the 2006 study on manpower. Nancy? Well, one of the things was that where, uh, while the model age for enrolling in anesthesia students, anesthesia programs, excuse me, was 30, a large portion of students were older. So CRNAs entering at a higher age probably will shorten their careers and not contribute, and they won't contribute as much in the long term as far as work years as um younger CRNAs would do. I had never given a whole lot of thought to that, but I was the second youngest 
in my class, and I was 26 or 27, mm-hmm. somewhere along there, mm-hmm. whenever I started. Yeah. And I was second youngest. Youngest. Mm-hmm. Everybody else was older. Yeah. So as far as retirement rates, there was a high exit rate in the late 20s and early 30s age groups. Uh, probably that was going to be related to family responsibilities. So in the late 30s age group, exit rate uh, is negative, suggesting women return to the CRNA workforce when children are older. Um, So should demands per estimated on vacancies or ratios of CRNAs to surgery? Well, some vacancies should always exist in a market with significant turnover and mobility. Uh, The demand for surgeries depends on the healthiness of the community, the wealth of the community, and the insurance environment of the community. And, of course, one of the things that we know now that's happening that's going to impact the market is the older population of people uh, is increasing. Mm -hmm. Boomer babies. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we're some of the – increase in elderly population has to do too with we're healthier somewhat healthier than in years past so yeah so while there has been a growth in crnas in the market the increase did not offset the number that retired and we've seen that when we look at um you know the slides that we see in from our our membership Mm -hmm. um surveys so the average age of CRNAs will continue to increase in the future despite increased numbers trained. So Nancy, before you go into 2009 study, I, I want to make a point here for everyone. When we're talking about people leaving the workforce because of family responsibilities and so on, and then they come back in their late 30s, I want to make a point here. For people that need to not work full-time, I strongly encourage you to work enough part-time that you never have to go through the re-entry process Mm. uh, that has not just been since NBCRNA. It's changed with NBCRNA, and it certainly isn't easier. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have a a re-entry process, but the thing is it's very difficult. And they really don't, um, in terms of credentialing, count clinical hours. So for these people that just can't work full-time, I would suggest you work part-time enough to show that you're continually engaged in anesthesia so you never find yourself in the position of having to go through these courses. Nancy and I are very closely tied uh, to, the to I think, the only approved total course here in the United States at Wake Forest. And uh, we did it ourselves before we handed it off to Wake Forest. But um, but it's hard. These people work very hard. And um, then they've got to find clinical sites. They have to find too. clinical sites, and then they have to find employment within one year of finishing all all the first. So so that is um, that's very important. I didn't mean to interrupt, no, but it's a good yeah. time to to mention that. I think. I agree, and I I support you 100% in that. But the supply of CRNAs in relation to surgeries will increase in the future. So, you know, if people are living longer, there are going to be more surgeries. You're going to need more providers. So uh, some key points in the foundation study that was published in 2009, uh, vacancy rates were higher in rural hospitals and in non-rural hospitals. Vacancy rates were lower in ambulatory sites than um, inpatient sites. 
possibly reasons uh, were the fact of less complexity of cases in the ambulatory centers, better hours, and better lifestyle balance. Um, a remarkable factor since the last study was an unusually large rate of new CRNAs entering the market, yet vacancy rates remained relatively high. Just 2009. Wow. Uh, now, for me, um, I worked in a rural hospital. I got very bored, and I came back to complex cases. So I probably oh. would not but be you are those. just an odd bird. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, you know, I was talking to a CRNA yeah. this week, and she's in – you know, a place where she gets to do regional and I mean, she gets to do so much stuff and she wants to leave the particular area she's in and go to a place in North Carolina that she can do this. But she wants to be in a larger city where there's things to do. And I'm like, you know, that's really tough to get where you have that kind of autonomy. Uh, isn't that the truth? Yeah. I mean, you either go to a small rural place and, you know, you might have a little more autonomy, but you're not going to have those big cases. And, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Well, <clears throat> you know, I, I say that in jest. And here I've gone back to a hospital after 16 years. Right. So, and. And it's and been I've, a learning process. And I've it? had a, I've had a blast going back yeah. and, you know, mm-hmm. not just working in GI anymore all the time. Right. Right. So, yeah. yeah, I hear you. Yeah. All right, Sandy, the, the Cromwell did a study as well on person power. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> You're getting so, so politically uh, correct. <laughs> so, uh, Jerry Cromwell and others that, that studied, remember, he was the one in 2010, I believe, that did No Harm, no harm Found, found. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we find. And what that study showed is between opt-out states and non-opt-out states, uh, there was no difference in the need for burials and burial plots for the for the uh, for the states uh, that had opted out, uh. and so his name is familiar there. But in this one, he he said that the delivery of anesthesia in the U.S. is at the crossroads. In 1967, and that now that was the year I entered anesthesia school, Sharon. The ratio of CRNAs to anesthesiologists was two to one, and the numbers are e- are nearly equal today. So, oh. if we're talking about fifty thousand nurse anesthetists, I haven't looked at the ASA uh, data, but it's probably. I heard a speaker a few years ago said it was about equal. They about fifty thousand anesthesiologists. Uh, this article developed uh, a CRNA manpower forecasting model based on two scenarios. One was that the current trend of anesthesiologists replacing CRNAs and absolutely sitting down and administering all the anesthesia themselves. The second was CRNAs are involved in every anesthetic under anesthesiologist supervision. And what he found was more than a twofold increase in CRNA school enrollment is needed to fill conservative baseline needs due to the predictive growth in operations in all settings, as Nancy had mentioned. Limiting anesthesiologists to a supervisory role would require a doubling of CRNAs by 2010 and a greater expansion of CRNA schools. And he then, the third point was, estimated that by reversing CRNA manpower trends, society would save $750 million to $1.2 billion annually, which Nancy had mentioned. So that was all good news for us in his findings. 
Since we have so much to talk about with this topic, we're going to continue the conversation next week with part two. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you won't miss the conclusion. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. 
Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.